1: This is Perspectives, the show where an examination of our many differences often shows us how much we have in common. I'm Condice Presley. In studio today is Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum, President Emerita of Atlanta's Spelman College. Twenty years ago, she wrote the book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? And Other Conversations About Race. A 20th anniversary edition is available today with new research and new information. And coming up Tuesday evening, she has an event at the Atlanta History Center. So, Dr. Tatum, welcome to Thank, Perspectives.
0: Thanks so much, Candice. I'm so happy to be here.
1: So I got to start with uh, recently, U.S. News and World Report released its rankings of the best colleges in the United States. And once again, tops among historically black colleges and universities is Spelman College. That must make you so proud.
0: Absolutely. Certainly, Spelman is a jewel of an institution, and I was honored to serve there for 13 years and delighted that I was able to pass my baton to a fabulous leader, Dr. Mary Schmidt Campbell.
1: Absolutely. So now, you were born in Tallahassee, right? Yes. And raised in Massachusetts, right? That's correct. How would you characterize your elementary, middle, and high school
0: experience? Well, that's a great question. I Let me say a word about why I grew up in Massachusetts. And I was born in Tallahassee, Florida, as you mentioned. I don't mind telling people I was born in 1954, uh, the year of Brown versus Board of Education. And my parents were both Howard University graduates. My father was a professor, an art professor, and he had earned his art degree at Howard and then gone on to earn a master's degree in the early 50s at the University of Iowa. And so there we were in Tallahassee, and he was teaching at Florida a and and wanted to get his doctorate degree in art education, which he could have done at Florida State University, also there in Tallahassee. But unfortunately, still in 1954, after the Brown decision, uh, Florida State was still a segregated institution and not admitting black graduate students. So the state of Florida was obligated by law to provide access to graduate education for African-Americans in the state, and they did so by paying my father's transportation to Pennsylvania. So he traveled to Penn State and got his degree there. Um, He always would tell me, let's be clear, they didn't pay my tuition at Penn State, but they paid his train fare. Um, And so having had that experience with segregation in Florida, once he completed his degree, he and my mom were not wanting to send their children to the segregated schools in Florida. And so my dad started looking for a job in the north and found one in Massachusetts. And so in 1958, we moved to Bridgewater, Massachusetts. I was four years old, and my father was the first African-American professor at that institution. I um, So growing up there, I had two kinds of experiences. One was, you know, the ordinary small-town growing-up experience, though I was Usually, the only black child in my class. It was a mostly white community; very few black families. On the other hand, my father was the first African American professor um, at the university, and everyone knew him, and therefore knew me as Dr. Daniel's daughter. So that was kind of a privileged experience in some ways. My mother became a public school teacher, and um, you know, I grew up in this very education-centered family, and. Uh, had friends. I was kind of a shy kid, but I was very, a very good student. My mother was a reading teacher and she became a reading teacher, but I was her first student. That is to say, she taught me how to read when I was very young. So when I got to school, I was already a pretty proficient reader, which set me apart from other kids in another way. Ah. Good or bad for you in that experience? Well, I think it was good. I mean, I wasn't um, picked on or anything like that, but um I, as a consequence of being a great reader in the first grade, I skipped a grade. So I went from first grade to third grade, and uh, which put me younger than everyone. So, you know, I went through my school years being a year to two years younger than everybody else, which didn't really bother me. You know, I think um, it might have aggravated some social awkwardnesses that I had when I was a teenager because I was younger than everybody else, couldn't get my driver's license until... I was graduating from high school, all those kinds of things. But I describe my experience in Bridgewater as um, relatively benign. Oh.
1: If your mother was a reading teacher, your father was a professor, education clearly very important in your household, was it determined that you were going to pursue a career in education? Or how did you make that choice for yourself?
0: That's a great question. It was determined for sure that I was going to college. You know that was you know there was no discussion about that. I, there was just an assumption. I had um, two brothers and one sister, and we all went to college, and we knew we would from day one because our parents were educators. That was part of the family. Expectation. Where do you
1: fall in, in birth order?
0: I am the oldest girl. I have an older brother, and then I, so second in line of this four children. But I um, didn't want to be a professor initially. In fact, I intended to be a clinical psychologist working as a therapist. And I decided that when I was 16 based on reading a book about a psychologist. I thought, I read a book about um, a woman who did therapy with young children and I thought, this is really interesting, that's what I want to do. So I went to college, got got my undergraduate degree in psychology and then went to graduate school and uh, got a PhD in child clinical psychology with the intent of becoming a therapist. And I did indeed do that for a little while, I, um, but while I was in graduate school, I had the opportunity to be a teaching assistant. And so even though I hadn't planned to be a college professor, I really enjoyed my experience as a teaching assistant and um, had the opportunity later in my graduate experience to teach a course on my own and One of the courses I was invited to teach was called Group Exploration of Racism. And I wasn't sure exactly what group exploration of racism would be, but I thought, well, I can teach that. I understand groups because I'm a psychologist that has experience facilitating groups. And I've been doing research on the experiences of black families in predominantly white communities. I have some understanding of racism. I'll give it a try. And it turned out to be a very powerful learning experience for me and for my students. And on the basis of that, I decided I wanted to continue down that road. What
1: made it such a powerful learning experience?
0: Well, I was 26 years old at the time, and I was a relatively inexperienced teacher. And I say all that to say that I didn't expect that at the end of the semester, students would say the glowing things that they said. But they said things in their evaluations, their written evaluations, like, this is the most important course I've taken in college. Um, I wish everyone could take this class. I have never had the opportunity to talk about race with other people in the way we've talked about in this class. It has changed my view of everything. I mean, it was very uh, striking. And I was teaching at that time. I was teaching this class in California at the University of California at Santa Barbara. I did my graduate work at the University of Michigan, but got married uh, and followed my husband to California. And so while we were there, I had this opportunity to teach this class. And the student response, again, UC Santa Barbara is a predominantly white institution. Most of the students in my class were white, but they were students who were saying that we all need to be talking about this. I wish I'd taken this course sooner. It was very, very positive. And I decided, well, I I think I should keep doing it. And I did. While we lived in California, I taught the course probably nine or 10 times. And then when we moved on, we came back to Massachusetts and I got my first full-time tenure track teaching appointment at Westfield State College, now Westfield State University in Massachusetts. I asked the chair of my department if I could teach a course on what I was then calling the psychology of racism. And I did that for 20 plus years.
1: You said that your father did not want you to experience the segregated education that that existed in the South when you were a little girl. Yes. Is that why when it came to make a selection for where you would pursue your higher education, you attended predominantly white institutions, I guess as they're described today, as opposed to an HBCU?
0: No, I mean, so I think that my parents were both very proud Howard graduates, and my mother would have been delighted if I'd gone to her alma mater, Howard University. Um, And I think in part because, you know, she was my mom and I wanted to do my own thing. That was one of the primary reasons I didn't choose to go to Howard. We didn't really talk about other schools. Spelman never came up in the course of our conversation. And I think... From my parents' point of view, probably Washington, D.C. was probably about as far south as they would have wanted me to go, given their knowledge of the Jim Crow South that they experienced in the 50s. But I um, I think in 1971, when I was graduating from high school, there were many more choices available, and having grown up in Massachusetts, there was certainly... Um, in the Northeast, there is a bias toward New England colleges, and I think I'd absorbed that as part of my early, high, you know, my high school experience. All my friends were going to, you know, small liberal arts colleges in the Northeast, and that was pretty much where I was focused as well.
1: And you went to Wesleyan, correct? I went to
0: Wesleyan University in Connecticut.
1: And you did your graduate work at Michigan? Michigan, yes. You've written extensively, Dr. Tatum, about race and racial identity development, as you said, because you taught that first class at the age of 26, group exploration of racism. Define for me what racial identity development means.
0: Well, in a race-conscious society, we all have a racial identity. Some of us are paying more attention to our racial identities than others, right? Right. If you are a white person living in a mostly white community, going to mostly white schools, working in a mostly white setting, you are not likely to be thinking very much about your racial identity because other people are probably not bringing it to your attention. If you are a person of color growing up, whether you grew up in a predominantly white community like I did, or even a majority black community or a community where people are the same ethnic and racial background as you are, In the course of your lifetime, you're likely to have experiences where other people are bringing to your attention your racial group membership. That could be as the result of being a teenager stopped by a policeman on the street. It could be the result of going to the mall and having the sense that people are following you around or treating you differently than perhaps the white teenagers you see in the mall. Um, it could be the result of experiences you had or just watching television and, and feeling as though you you don't see yourself represented as often as others do. Certainly today in 2017, there's more representation on television than there was in 1997 when I first wrote my book or in the you know 60s and 70s when I was growing up. But everyone has a racial or ethnic identity again, in the context of a race-conscious society. If we didn't pay attention to race as a society, we might not be talking about racial identity. But um, we do have a race-conscious society, and people do pay attention and bring it to your attention as you're developing, and you have to start to think about, how does this make sense to me?
1: Even more so today. Your book, Groundbreaking, 20 years ago, as you said, as we started, features new research that, easily could be ripped from today's headlines, correct?
0: Absolutely. One of the things that is really striking if you look at what's different between today and 20 years ago is the demographic change in our population. There are, um, you know, this was more than 20 years ago, but if we look at the 50s, the 1950s, the U.S. population was 90% white. Today, in 2017, The school age population is more than 50% kids of color. That's a huge change. And yet, we still have a society where there's a lot of segregation, residential segregation, and consequently, school segregation. So even though we have a very much more diverse society, Latinos are the largest population of color today. The Asian American population is the fastest growing population of color in the United States, largely due to immigration. You know, there are a lot of things that are changing about our um, ethnic and racial makeup, but the separation that exists is still part of the story.
1: In your book, you argue that Americans are still very reluctant to talk about race. Why do you think that is?
0: Well, I am sure they are still very reluctant. I see that in the audiences I speak to, and I think it goes back to the fact that we in the United States really have not wanted to deal with the past, um, the way that racism has impacted our past and continues to impact our present. It's a topic that makes many people feel uncomfortable and as a consequence, they avoid it. But I think as children, we learn from an early age that we're not supposed to talk about it. I often ask audiences, and I would ask your listeners to think about their earliest race-related memory. Most people can think of something that happened in childhood, sometimes a preschool memory, sometimes elementary school. Depending on where you grew up, it might have been middle school or high school. But most people can imagine or remember something that took place when they were five, six, seven years old. And then if you ask them how they felt about what happened, they'll usually tell you an uncomfortable emotion, like, anger or fear or confusion or sadness or embarrassment, something like that. And then if you ask them, did you talk to anybody about it? Most will tell you they didn't. And if you know five, six, or seven-year-olds, you know that they're pretty candid most of the time. So the fact that they had this experience, it was upsetting in some way, and yet they didn't talk to anyone about it is a little counterintuitive. When I ask audiences, well, why was that? inevitably someone will say, I just knew I wasn't supposed to. Early on, we get those messages that this is an uncomfortable topic for adults, and we learn not to talk about it. And if you fast forward to the age of 35 or 45 or 65, you know, that's a lot of years of learning. Don't talk about this.
1: I'm sure you, like many Americans, saw the deadly protest in Charlottesville, Virginia, and the president's response to it. What was your reaction to those and subsequent events that we've seen since last year's election?
0: Well, certainly the events in Charlottesville were horrible. You know, the the deadly violence, horrible. The um, reemergence and heightened visibility of neo-Nazis and white supremacists is certainly not a positive thing. I mean, you know, it's very, very distressing to see that um, reemerging. The president's comments, I think, really reminded me about why leadership matters, Um, that there was an opportunity in his comments to really draw a circle that would make clear that we intend to be an inclusive society, that we intend to be a society where everyone feels affirmed and included, and those who don't want such a society should not be allowed to Um, invoke fear in everyone else. And so I think it was a real missed opportunity. I think his comments were wrong, and I think he's doubled down on them, and he's still wrong. But I um, know that it matters. Leadership matters, and the words we use matter. And one of the things I often tell people who read my book, that I, I say this in the book, and I talk to audiences about the fact that we all have the opportunity to exercise leadership. And so even when we're disappointed by a particular leader, there's no reason why we shouldn't exercise our own leadership in trying to um, bring people together rather than set them apart.
1: So among circles of friends or coworkers or places where we know we've grown up thinking, I'm not supposed to have this type of conversation, but knowing that there might be someone in that environment who wants to show leadership and initiate a conversation about race, in light of many of the headlines that we
0: read. How would you structure that? How do you make that happen? Well, I think there's a great example right here in Atlanta. And it's called something called the Atlanta Friendship Initiative. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it, it was something started by um, a white man named Bill Nordmark. And, his, uh, and he partnered with a black man named John Grant. Uh, Bill and John had known each other casually, but not well. And Bill was concerned that there was not enough cross-racial interaction, um, that there was a need to break down boundaries. And so he asked John if he would be willing to meet with him and talk about how the two of them could build, their, deepen their own relationship, become better friends, but also model that for other people. And I mention it because here it is right in Atlanta. Um, Bill and John then worked together to ask pairs of people who didn't necessarily know each other well, maybe didn't know each other at all, to meet regularly across lines of difference, across race in some cases, across religious, in some cases, across gender too. And um, it's been quite remarkable to hear those people talking about the fact that they have really gotten to know their partner in a way that um, somebody they just got matched up with through this Atlanta Friendship Initiative in ways that have allowed them to talk to each other about this thorny topic of race and deepen their own understanding. And I think it's one example of, you know, a person with an idea decided I wanna do something.
1: Very nice. People who aren't black or Hispanic or Asian tend to avoid the conversation saying the sins of the father are not the sins of the child. How would you want today's white America to deal with what is often called America's original sin?
0: I would want people to understand the fact that that original sin still lives with us in terms of the way our society is structured. For example, if we think about um, the differential treatment of veterans after World War II, You know, we often hear about the GI Bill and how that was so instrumental in building the middle class, giving those veterans opportunities for low-interest housing loans and access to college and all of that. And many people will say, you know, my father, many white people will say, you know, my father didn't start with much, he worked hard, he was able to get that GI Bill, he did these things, he was able to accumulate and become successful as a business person or whatever. And no one wants to take away the effort that was represented in that story. But if we know our history, what we will know is that a very small fraction of black GIs had able, were able to access those benefits. And you might say, well, why is that? A lot of it had to do with housing disag- segregation. For example, those GI loans, those low interest loans, were given for new housing construction. If you wanted to buy a house in the suburbs, you could get one of those loans. But if you're a black person wanting to buy a house in the suburbs, some of which had uh, racial covenants preventing you from buying a house, then you couldn't get one of those loans. It was much harder to get a loan for a house in an older neighborhood, particularly if it was already largely populated by people of color. The um, federal government was essentially engaging in redlining, as an example. Now, what does that have to do with life today? Well, if you weren't able to buy a house in a place that the value appreciated, then you don't have access to a home equity loan to help send your kid to college. You don't have access to resources that might otherwise have been available to you. That's just a small example. But when we talk about the original sin, it's not like it happened once and it was over. You know, we know that the legacy of those practices and policies are continued in many ways today, and that's, I think, the part of the story that we don't like to talk about but need to in order to understand what makes um, people so frustrated when they're talking about their experiences with racism. It's been going on a long time.
1: Our guest is Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum, the President Emerita of Spelman College. Her book, With new research first written in 1997, why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria? And other conversations about race. Perspectives is a half hour we produce with you in mind. If there's something you think we ought to be talking about, let me hear from you. Tweet me, myandalouscondo29, on Twitter. Or leave a message on our Facebook page. We do appreciate your listening and hope you'll be back next week at this same time as we examine another perspective. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by.